Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. I left off the last time I preached because last time, last time I was up here, we were talking about uh, Jacob preparing to go and meet his brother Esau, and and hearing that that Esau heard he was coming and was coming with four hundred men and all this fear that had kind of overtaken him that that he was going to have to to really protect himself and he was afraid for his life because if you think about it, the last time Jacob and Esau had seen each other, what had happened? Jacob had stolen his brother's blessing from his father. And then his mother said, your brother's really angry. You should get out of here. And so he, he, he snuck away. He ran off and has been gone for 20 years at this point as he's been um, working for Laban uh, and growing his family. And, and, and we, as we talked about a few weeks ago, really growing all of his flocks and, and all of his things. And God has really been blessing him and, and establishing him 
as, as, as one who will continue to be blessed like his father and Abraham before him. And here's the thing. Ever since chapter 3 of this whole study through Genesis, we've really been following kind of two storylines. We've been following the, the brokenness and the sinfulness and the separation that God's creation, that, that, that mankind, that, that, that we have been facing since the fall, since we sinned and since we separated ourselves from God. We've been seeing the, the brokenness and the sinfulness and the depravity of man all throughout this whole story. We continue to be reminded over and over again just how sinful we can possibly be. How creatively we can come up with ways to do things that aren't pleasing to God. But at the same time, we've also been following this, this, this path of God working out this, this plan where he's going to fix that. From chapter 3, from the moment that the fall took place, we've also been following this promise that God made that he was going to restore this relationship. Between, between mankind, between his creation and himself, between holiness and brokenness, between sinfulness and perfection, that God has been working out this plan all along. The, the idea of reconciliation, the coming back together, the, 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 the restoring of a broken relationship is so central, so foundational, and so at the heart of Christianity. We cannot miss this idea. And this week, when we see Jacob and Esau coming back together, and the way that this interaction, the way that it was set up like you would have expected that it would go, and then the way that it ends up playing out, the things that we end up seeing happen as they meet are very different. And, and what we're seeing happen in their lives is reconciliation. So we're going to spend a lot of time this morning talking about this idea. This concept of mending a broken relationship, removing the thing that is separating, restoring some level of separation, and, and, how, and how we're seeing it played out here. We're going to see the attitude that Jacob is demonstrating here. We're going to see the attitude that Esau has demonstrated here. And we're going to be able to pick up some of these things that should be true of us because reconciliation, like I said, is so foundational to Christianity. This concept is so at the core of, of how we have been created, that we, we've been created to have our relationships restored together, connected with one another. It, it finds its way into every story that we tell, right? Think of, think of your favorite book. Think of your favorite movie. Think of your favorite TV show. At some point, the conflict tends to center around some form of broken relationship that we don't feel satisfied until it's restored, right? When are Ross and Rachel going to get back together? When are they going to figure it out? When are they going to reconcile over the things that they've disagreed on, right? That's, that's, that's the whole concept of an entire 10 seasons of TV. And that's so central to who we are because it's the story that we have been living our whole lives, and so as we talked about Jacob and Esau preparing to meet again a couple weeks ago, what was, the, what was the first thing that we saw Jacob do? He said he set aside some of the, some of the flocks, some of the things that God had blessed him with. He said, I'm going to send these ahead to my brother as a gift so that hopefully he'll, he'll see that, that I'm coming to him humbly. I'm coming to him wanting to make amends, wanting to, 
wanting to work this thing out. And, and we talked about how, how afraid Jacob was and how, sure, part of this was probably him just trying to, it could have been him trying to butter up his brother. You know, maybe he'll like me if I give him a bunch of sheep. That would make everybody like you, right? If, if, if somebody gave you a bunch of sheep, that would make you happy, right? Yes, I'm seeing some, a few thumbs up. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He sends all of these things ahead, but, but even in the way that we see this interaction take place, even in the way that he approaches Esau, this whole interaction, there are so many things that we can see that are being demonstrated by Jacob that I think are worth noting for us today as we continue talking about reconciliation, how that should look for us. There are a few things that stand out. First, look at the posture that Jacob took as he approached his brother. Once he saw him coming, first thing he did was he divided his family up by people that he loved more, which is a little weird, right? He kind of he did that. He said, we'll put you guys up front just in case he kills you guys. Maybe he'll be tired of killing people by the time he gets to this wife and kids. And then hopefully he'll be really tired if he hasn't. Like, this is the way he's, he's still kind of thinking, let me make sure I set this situation up in a beneficial way. But, but he goes first, right? And what does it say that he does? It says that he bowed to the ground seven times. He takes on a posture of humility. When he's, when he's seeking to reconcile with somebody else, this is, this is good for us to know. He takes on a posture of humility. That does not necessarily look like bowing down to the ground in our society. But if you have wronged someone, and this is, this is something that I struggle with. Typically, if I'm informed that I have done something to hurt somebody else, my initial reaction isn't to take on a posture of humility. Maybe it's not yours. Maybe it is yours. But I tend to be one who, when I'm told I'm wrong, my first reaction, my initial reaction is to bow up and be like, no, I'm right. I'm good. You can't tell me. And get angry. Like, that's typical. And then, then my, second, my second step is tending to debate with you and try to convince you that you're wrong about what you think I did wrong and that I was actually right in what I did and that I was justified. And then eventually I come around to postures of humility. But, but here's the thing. We see with him, wanting to make this right between he and his brother, the first thing that he does is he takes on a posture of humility. Whatever that needs to look like societally. For some of us, it may, just, it may actually be not bowing up and looking strong, but being willing to be broken. Being willing to, to look as if you know that you are wrong. Sometimes, I'm not saying you have to hang your head and hang your shoulders, and that's the way you reconcile with people. But, but everything about him is demonstrating this desire to defer to Esau, even in the way that he approaches him. He doesn't walk up to him confidently. He comes up humbly and trying to, and, and, and trying to demonstrate as he approaches I'm trying to make right what I have in the past made wrong with you. Look at the way he talked over and over and over again. He calls himself his servant and he calls Esau Lord. This isn't him like treating him like God, but this is him saying, this is him speaking respectfully to the person. He's not trying to, to like I said, I, I, my, my default tends to be to debate or try to convince you that you're wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't take that approach. He humbly approaches him and he speaks respectfully to him. He continually is saying things that are deferring to Esau. If this pleases my Lord, if this pleases my Lord, if, if this works for you, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing is, is helpful to you, is beneficial to you. 
I, I know that it, it could be easy for me to try to say, well, here's why I did this, and well, God promised that he would do this through me, so it's okay. He's not trying to justify anything. He's merely trying to say, how can I make this better? And I think that's helpful for us. He's not trying to, he's not trying to find common ground. He's absolutely deferring in every aspect to Esau. So he took a posture of humility. He spoke respectfully. And then Jacob sought to restore to Esau what he had cost him. Now, here's the thing. We talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about this idea of paying back debts that are accrued because of some sort of sinful interaction or, or making right what has been made wrong. And, and, and granted, there's nothing that we can do to pay back God for the sin and the brokenness in our relationship with him. But this idea of, of, not, of not holding on to what we've gained and saying, I'm going to give back what I can, I, I, think, I think is a demonstration of where Jacob's heart is, right? His desire is, I want to give you some of what God has blessed me with because I have already taken so much from you, right? Because if you think about it, when, he, he, when, when Esau sold him his birthright and then he took his blessing, he took all of, the, all of the handed down flocks, all of the things that, that Esau could have received from his father. But instead, now he's saying, I have been blessed by God. I want to, out of my abundance, I want to give back to you. I want to restore some of these things that have been caused. And Esau says, I'm fine. I don't need this. But again, speaking respectfully, he says, I know that I have wronged you in the past and I want to make this right in this way took on a posture of humility, spoke respectfully, restored what he had cost Esau. And finally, Jacob gave great credit to God being the one who had blessed him, which, which is new because we've seen Jacob being a manipulator. I'm getting what I can get. I'm getting things that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist the system or kind of work really hard and get things that help me. I'm going to try to find myself an advantage. All of this. But, but now we're starting to see this language shift and Jacob to say, look at what God has done for me. I didn't earn, I didn't, I didn't make this. This is God trying to create this for me. God blessing me, and now I can bless you because God has blessed me. And I think, I think we're starting to see the shift. So, so even, even as we reconcile with others, I think it's worth noting that our desire to reconcile comes from God working in our hearts and credit to God should come from our mouths as we're describing our desire to reconcile. Does that make sense? I'm, it's not, I want to I make things right because it'll make me feel better. It's because I want to make things right because God's already done so much for me. Why would I not want to? You know, like credit for this desire to reconcile comes from God. And we're seeing all of these things taking place in this interaction. So uh, we're going to... We're going to leave that interaction now for a bit. Uh, and I, because I kind of want to go through what the Bible teaches us about reconciliation. We see these examples given, but, but how, what does the Bible actually say specifically? What are, some, what are some things that we as the church now need to know about reconciliation? Well, first is that reconciliation is the goal of accountability. The reason we have we have passages about accountability or so that we will be reconciled with one another. We, we, we often use Matthew 18 as our, you've done something wrong, I need to tell you to make it right. 
I need to tell you you've sinned and you need to repent. And, and that is absolutely part of Matthew 18. It is the process by which the church handles correction. But if you read the very beginning of that section, Matthew 18, verse 15, this is key. It'll be up on the screen. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the step that we tend to stop at. I'm going to go stop and correct you. But then it says, here's the point. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The whole point of correcting somebody who is in sin is not to make them feel bad, is not to make them repent, is not to do something for them, but so that you can restore your relationship with them that has been severed by the presence of whatever the sin is that's in their life. Our goal when we go to somebody who is in sin is not just to say, you need to be doing something differently. The goal is, there is something separating us right now, and that needs to be restored. We need to be able to connect. We need to be able to be in community with one another, right? I mean, remember what first happened at the fall. What was the the, the very last thing we saw right after God created Adam and Eve was that it said they were both naked and they were unashamed, like they had nothing to hide. The first thing that they did after the fall was they went and they made clothes for themselves and they covered them up because they were ashamed. There was immediately this separation. There was immediately this keeping them apart. There was immediately something that had come between them, and that was sin. And the whole point of of salvation and reconciliation and restoration, all of this, is that it, again, removes all those barriers that are between us and lets us come together in community. Let's us reconnect together. This idea of, it it, it goes beyond just correction. It's it's actually gaining a brother has been like really... um, like something we've been kind of working through recently at our house because um, over the last school year, uh, there was, man, little girl elementary drama. I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but it turns out that drama starts really young for little girls in public school. Uh, and there was, Ellie was, Ellie had a, had a difficult time getting along with this one girl who was in another class who was friends with one of Ellie's friends who was also in that class with that girl. It was a mess. It was a mess. And then we come to find out that, that when the new classes for this year got all sorted out, the girl that she had issues with last year or the girl that had issues with her, depending on how you want to look at it, um, was going to be in the same class as her this year. And so Ellie was... And, of course, now she's gone. I asked her if I could tell this story, and she said I could. Uh, But um, first day of school, she's been terrified. She's like, I'm nervous about about my relationship with student X, whose name I won't use. Um, But I'm nervous because we don't get along. She didn't like me. I, I don't want that to be. And it's like, just go to school and see what happens. Just go to school and see what happens. Very first day. At the end of the day, the third friend comes running out first and says to Tiff and the little girl's mom, she said, Ellie and this girl are friends now. Like the first thing they did was they, they went and they talked and they said, I'm sorry that this, did, that this happened last year. 
can we be friends? And now apparently they're friends and they can play on the playground and they're going to go meet by the swings every day or something like this. But it wasn't just, hey, let's, let's bury the hatchet. It wasn't just water under the bridge. Let's, let's be cool with existing in the same space, right? The thing that stood out to me in that whole interaction was we don't want to be together not to just we can exist, but rather now we are friends. That is the goal of reconciliation. The goal of reconciliation is to gain your brother or your sister. It's to, it's to actually reconnect and have a relationship, not just set aside the things that make you feel uncomfortable around each other. Do you see that difference there? Do you see what I'm talking about? The purpose of reconciliation is that we actually gain new meaningful relationships, new connectedness within the church. That's the point of reconciliation. And that's the goal of trying to correct one another where there is wrong. So, so reconciliation is the goal of accountability. Coming back together, restoring broken relationships. Second thing that we can learn. Through reconciliation, God breaks down the things that separate us. This can be painful, but in the end, we're reconnected to God. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been, we've been memorizing Ephesians chapter 2. We haven't memorized verses 14 through 18. They're a little bit later in the chapter, but, but these verses kind of help us here. Second, so, second chapter of Ephesians, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through Christ, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Spirit in one spirit to the Father. So let me give you a little context about what Paul is talking about here in this chapter. What he's talking about is you had two different groups of people. You had the Jews and you had the Gentiles. And the point that he's trying to make is, if you've been, if you've been memorizing the first 10 versions, verses of Ephesians with us, there's this whole explanation of, you were once far from God, lost in your sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us, right? God did this thing. He made us alive together in Christ. But now, even more so, you had two different groups of people who had nothing in common. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. And now, through Christ, he's breaking down that wall of hostility. He's saying, I'm removing the thing that separates you. Christ, by being broken himself, through his sacrifice, through his death, is breaking down the things that separate us from one another. So that no longer are there Jews and Gentiles. No longer are there these people and those people. There are the people of God, the body of Christ the sons and daughters who have been adopted into the family of God. And, and I mean, look at what reconciliation cost Jesus, right? Sometimes being broken down, sometimes having, having things revealed that need to be reconciled can be painful. It was painful for Christ to reconcile us to himself and to God. 
But, but in breaking down these things, he's taking down the things that keep us hostile toward one another. Those, those things that separate us, whether, whether, it's, whether it's, in this case, your race, or whether it's your politics, or whether it's your sensibilities about what kinds of lifestyle you live, or whether you like Disney or Universal, or whatever it is, whatever it is that people might argue about. He's saying he's breaking down those walls of hostility so that we can all be considered as one. That's the point. It's not just removing hostility so that we can all get along. It's, separate, it's removing the wall of hostility so that we can be one. We can be united. Reconciliation doesn't just stop at water under the bridge. Reconciliation is completed when we are restored and in perfect community with one another and with God. Does that make sense? And that last little bit, for through him we have both access, we, have, we both, like all of us, we're all in, because, because here's the bottom line, we both, whatever the separated groups are, have access in one spirit to the Father. Because the big deal is that we're connected to God. Our connectedness is first to the creator of the universe, the creator of everything. That's the big deal. And now that we are both equally connected to God, we have that in common. We have nothing that needs separate us anymore. So, just to kind of recap, reconciliation is the goal of accountability. And, through rec- and then second, through reconciliation, God breaks down the things that separate us, and we get connected to Him. Third, reconciliation leads to forgiveness regardless of the past offense. Think about what we're seeing with Jacob and Esau here, right? Jacob absolutely, deceptively stole something his father had intended to give to Esau. He took his father's blessing, and then he took it and ran, had lots of kids, big family, got really wealthy. Yes, part of God's plan. But at the expense of Esau, right? And what is it that we see when they finally see each other? We see Esau running up, and it uses this description, falling on his neck and kissing him and weeping, right? This, this I don't care what happened before, I'm just happy that we are together again kind of mentality. We've seen this one other pla- at least one other place in the Bible. If you're familiar with Luke 15, this, there's, there's a story of the lost son who, who basically steals everything from his dad and says, I want, I want you to be dead so I can have my inheritance now. Right? And then he takes half of everything that his father had, and he goes off and starts partying and loses all of it. Horrible life decisions, all the way down to the point that there's this huge famine in the land that he's gone off to, after having lost everything that his father gave him, to the point that he's, 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 he's resigned himself to just feeding pigs and occasionally eating whatever slop it is that he's feeding the pigs so that he can survive. And then he decides, you know what? My father's servants eat better than I do, so I should just go back to him, and I should offer to be one of his servants, and at least then I'll be able to survive a little while longer. 
But when he gets back, this is what happens. Luke 15, starting in verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This son basically told his dad, I wish you were dead so that I could go have fun with my friends. I'm too busy waiting around for me to get all this inheritance. Jacob stole everything that he could from Esau and ran. Right? But in these, both these instances, when the moment of reconciliation occurs, once they get back together, all of that is set aside to the point that the father in Luke 15 says, I'm not just going to hire you back as a servant. No, you are my son and I am restoring to you your right as my son. And I think it's worth noting. And this isn't, this isn't me teaching this as license to sin. This isn't a, God will forgive you whatever you do, so feel free to go do whatever you want. That's not the point. I could read you Bible that says that too. But the point is, don't let whatever it is that you have done that could offend someone else, that has offended someone else, or hurt someone else, or hurt your family, or hurt your friends, or hurt the church, or hurt God. Don't let that keep you from humbly coming back and seeking reconciliation with someone. Don't let that fear, because, because forgiveness is forgiveness. When we have been forgiven and reconciled to God, when we are saved... That is knowing whatever it is that we've done. God is saying, I can take care of that part. The cross takes care of whatever it is that you have done in your life. It takes away the stain of your sin. It also takes away the shame that follows having committed that sin. We don't have to continue to sit and, and, and just kind of feel the weight and depth of the sins of our past. He takes all of that away. And also, if you're on the other side where somebody's coming to you, don't reconcile with conditions. Reconciliation means reconciliation, means restoration, means letting go of things of the past. Look at the father. He had every right to just make his son work for him and then not give him anything the day he died. But instead, he restores him and says, it's okay. There's nothing that you could have done that will keep me from continuing to treat you as my son and loving you as my son. And that's an important thing for some of us to hear because we may think, oh, I've done this or I've said this or I've done this thing and there's no longer any hope or now I can't go back and have a relationship with this person because of this sin. There's, there should be nothing that is present in our lives that can keep us from 
restoring our relationship with the church, with the people of God, and with God himself. That's not what reconciliation is. So reconciliation is the goal of accountability. Reconciliation breaks down the things that are between us, leads to forgiveness regardless of past offense. Reconciliation takes sacrifice. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we were en- for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is the whole point. The only reason we understand reconciliation the way that we do is because Christ has already sacrificed everything so that we could be reconciled to him. Reconciliation took sacrifice. Reconciliation took the dying of a perfect man on our behalf as a perfect sacrifice so that we could be restored and reconciled to God. And that, that that being reconciled to him should lead us to praise and worship and rejoicing in who Christ is and what it is that he has done for us. Because we now have this restored relationship with God, and like we read in Ephesians 2, because of that restored relationship, we have this restored relationship with one another, that should lead to joy. The fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ should lead us to rejoicing. One last point. One last point. So right after I make all these points about how reconciliation is the work of God, reconciliation is the work of Christ, Christ does all these things so that we can be reconciled. My last point is actually reconciliation is still our responsibility as the church. And this passage is very important to us here at CRC. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, it's, it's the passage from which we got our name. Um, I'll go ahead and read it and then we'll talk about it. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to start in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were far from God, but God, through Christ, 
reconciled us to himself. Doesn't that sound familiar? Through Christ reconciled us. We are a church of people who have been reconciled by Christ. A couple things I want to point out in that. He's not saying we're the ones who reconcile people to God. He's saying we're the ones who've been entrusted with that message of reconciliation. As people who know what true reconciliation, what true restoration to our Father looks like, we've been given that message. And then he gives us a great example. And I, and I love the desperation in Paul's voice when he says this. Right? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like that desperation, that I just want you to know what you need. You need to be reconciled to God. He doesn't just stop with, here's the academic understanding of what it means to be reconciled to God. He says, no, and you need this. We have it and rejoice greatly in it. I want you to also understand that. So that is where we will end today is this idea. This, this seeing what reconciliation is possible. And if you have experienced this reconciliation with Christ, then you understand what it means to have something that is so broken, so far apart, so separated, restored. If you are in Christ, you should carry on this message of reconciliation. Yes, in, in, in carrying out the message and saying, you can be reconciled to Christ. And that is that is. 100% what our goal is as the church, especially on Wednesday nights when we come here and we go out walking. Yes, we want to have meaningful conversations with each other. We want to encourage and build each other up. But we want to be able to take this message of reconciliation with us as we go out so that we can talk to people and say, there is hope for you and for restoration. That's, that's what we have been called to. And that same level of desperation that is present in Paul's words should be present in our hearts, that we so want people to understand that they can have their relationship with Christ restored. But also, for those of us who are in Christ, let us realize that reconciliation with one another is also very important. And let this not be lost on you. All of these things that we're talking about. If, if there is some relationship between you and another member of the body of Christ, do not wait. If you, if you understand what it means to be restored to Christ, why would you not also want to be reconciled to your brother or sister? If there's something that, that, that some, some sin that you have committed against someone or some sin that someone has committed against you, don't wait Deal with it. Talk about it. Don't let it hang. Don't brush it aside. Don't ignore it. Don't think it will go away. It won't. The whole story of salvation that God has been working out throughout Genesis is one of reconciliation, one of restoration, one of re coming back together, restoring, mending this brokenness that, that was created at the fall. Our whole story is about reconciling. We should be people who reconcile well with one another, no matter how big or how little or how terrifying it may be to deal with. No matter what sacrifice or pain we may feel as we try to reconcile with others. But it's so vital to the life of the church and the mission of the church that we be one, that we be connected and that we be reconciled to one another. 
And if you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, if you have not understood what real reconciliation to your creator feels like, all I can say are the same words that, that Paul said to the Corinthians, and that's, I implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let go. Surrender surrender yourself to him. Trust in him. Place your hope in him. Stop trying to get by on your own and making things work on your own, but believe that he is the one who has done all that it takes to, re- to reconcile you and restore you to him.